You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Well, welcome back to Beltway Beef. We are joined this week on the podcast by a very special guest. Uh, this is somebody who's near and dear to, to, to my heart, coming from the natural resources end of the industry, uh, ranking member of the House Natural Resources Committee, member of Congress from the great state of Arkansas, Con Bruce Westerman, uh, hope to be soon future chairman. Bruce Westerman, thank you for joining us on the podcast this morning. We also have Caitlin Glover with us, executive director of natural resources and PLC executive director. Uh, Congressman, thank you for being with us. Well, Ethan, it's great to be with you. I uh, wish we could be in person, but uh, this is the next best thing. And we look forward to visiting with you and Caitlin and discussing issues that are near and dear to, to us and to, I think, Americans all across the country. On that topic, because there is no shortage of things going on. And, you know, as we're recording this, we were just talking about this. Uh, I'm in Idaho at Idaho Cattlemen. Uh, Caitlin is in, is in Montana this week. Uh, I know you have been on the road and are back in D.C. Uh, this week. What, what is at the top of your list? There's so much going on in Washington. Um, what, what's, what's top of mind for you right now coming into this kind of final push uh, through, the, through the fall in, in D.C.? Yeah, right now, the top priority, I would say, is to survive this onslaught with as little damage as possible. My top priority in the long run is to be able to leverage rural America and the resources that we have so that the United States are leaders in these areas. Uh, not that some government bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. is telling people in Idaho and Montana how to run their, their farms and their, their forest lands uh, because of some misguided uh, ideas that they have on how we can be better team players in the global climate initiative. Uh, you know, they... If, if you're going to have a plan, you want to have a plan that works and really what the Democrats are proposing are unworkable plans that are just going to put us more in debt. It's going to increase inflation, going to damage supply chains, and it's not going to be good for our country or the world. It's going to be like throwing napalm on the fire. It's it's bad news. Yeah, it, it is scary looking at some of those numbers. You know, and, and speaking of fire, Congressman Westerman, it's a topic that you know we use, I, I think, quite effectively in Washington as, as a description of what will happen in economic or an environmental scenario. But fire is a really real risk in the West and, and even in parts of the Midwest. And, and you know this well in, in your position, but also your professional background. What we saw this year was this inextricable link between fire and forest conditions and rangeland conditions and drought. This year, we saw one of the most significant, most pervasive droughts that we have seen in an incredibly long time. And when you're talking about investments in rural economies and investments in rural communities, one of the best investments that I think we agree we can make is that that active management. Proper forest management, proper rangeland management is an investment in, in water resources and rangeland resources. Um, can you talk a little bit about how cattle producers like, like those we represent um, and, and other grazers can work with you to advance forestry and rangeland policy uh, to, to make sure that we are clearly and, and effectively making these investments so that we can stop this fire cycle, so that we can we can move beyond this, this damaging cycle of, of, of burn and then char and then growth and then burn that we have seemed to have seen. Yeah, Caitlin, great question. And you might have made a mistake getting me talking about forestry because we may not 
get to cover any other topics. You know, I'm very passionate about it. Um, I think I'm still the only forester in in the house for sure. And uh, when we talk about man-made climate change, we should really look at the way we're managing our forests because we are burning up the one resource that can sequester uh, more carbon than anything else. Forests are the natural carbon eater. Teddy Roosevelt called forests the lungs of the earth because they breathe in carbon dioxide, they breathe out oxygen. A lot of people don't understand the, the role that forest plays with, uh, with water quality and quantity. And if you've got overgrown forest, you're ex a, uh, exaggerating the effects of a drought. You're also uh, creating uh, more fire danger in, in some of these forests. I'll, I'll take just a minute and talk about something that's really been on my mind lately. And I think it's something that people all across the country and all across the world uh, will, will be able to relate to. And it's our giant sequoias in California. There are 37,000 acres of giant sequoias in the world and they're in California. And I don't think the American public understands what's been happening to those giant sequoias. It's estimated that we lost 10 to 14% of them this year alone in forest fires. We won't know until next May. Um, if you look at the long history of sequoias and they're over 3000 years old in cases, researchers have gone back and they've looked at fire over several centuries. And we know that these giant sequoia forests were experiencing as many as uh, on average of about 30 fires per century. In the 20th century, those number of fires went down to around two fires per century. That's because of the mismanagement of, uh, of our federal agencies that thought we should put out every fire. Native Americans were burning these groves uh, up until the, the gold rush in California. And as more uh, people move west, uh, the Native Americans quit burning the fire. So it actually goes back a little bit into the 1800s. Now we're seeing, we've seen 80% of the sequoia groves burn in the last 10 years. These fires are burning at higher intensities than they've ever burned. Reason is, is because you've had these shade tolerant species grow up in the understory and they're creating ladder fuels. We're seeing giant sequoias being killed by fire and they're the most fire resistant species or fire tolerant species probably on the planet. Uh, and we're seeing whole groves of them wiped out. So these massive um, organisms that are sequestering carbon, that are doing what we need to do as far as cleaning the atmosphere, they're actually getting burned up because of mismanagement. And it's like speaking on deaf ears to, to Democrats and these environmental groups that think we shouldn't be doing any kind of forest management. So I think we're going to have to step up and do the right thing. And that's what I'm going to be pushing for is to, you know, at least make an example in these giant sequoia groves that management works, that we can do the right thing. And if we can do it on the giant sequoia groves, we can do it all across the West. Let's keep talking management because that's a great segue. We spent a lot of time, and I'm using the, the royal we here. You were involved in that conversation. Your colleagues on Capitol Hill, us at NCBA, the Public Lands Council, our state affiliates across the country, environmental NGOs, uh, you know, outdoor groups, you name it. Um, we spent a lot of time during the Trump administration working on things like the National Environmental Policy Act, like the Endangered Species Act and trying to figure out some ways to make sure that those tools 
are not used as uh, a means to shut down management or to, to stop responsible management of resources. Because, you know, all too often, as you know, over the last 40 years, that's exactly how they've been used. And a lot of the changes that were made, a lot of the regulatory changes that were made during the Trump administration, despite sort of, um, I think, being characterized by some people as, as you know, kind of Trump, uh, Trump administration giveaway deals, were brokered at great length and, and, and with a lot of debate amongst a lot of these different parties. Everyone had a seat at the table trying to figure out ways to make the Endangered Species Act work better. That had the support of staff, career staff at, at the Fish and Wildlife Service. Same goes for a lot of those changes to NEPA. We're starting to see those reforms rolled back. We've already seen rulemakings initiated on the critical habitat rules in, under ESA um, on the idea of cumulative impact under ESA. We're, we're starting to see work on the NEPA front. That's pretty concerning, I think, for our producers around the country because, um, you know, any progress uh, moving back towards the bad old days of, of those tools being used to prevent us from managing forests. Um, you know, we hear these horror stories about producers sitting in a dozer watching a fire go from 40 acres to 40,000 because they're, they're not able to just do what is common sense and, and move forward and, and stamp out that fire. Um, are you are, are you concerned up on the Hill? I know there are some new bills rolling out of your committee on ESA, um, trying to tackle some of these things. What do you think that landscape looks like as far as that real regulatory push and pull on this stuff over the next couple of years? Yeah, well, Ethan, if, if you think the environmental laws we've got in this country are working, if you think some of these radical environmental groups are protecting the resources, then you need to wake up and smell the smoke because right. it's been a miserable failure. Yep. Uh, and this has really been uh, put on steroids since the 1990s. You know, all of these uh, injunctions, the lack of management has resulted in a fuel buildup. It's resulted in overstock stands. You get uh, all this fuel buildup on the forest floor. You get ladder fuels and then lightning strikes or a wildfire gets out and you see the results of that. Uh, and you see billions, you know, this year, close to five billion taxpayer dollars spent to put fire out fire that could have been prevented on the front end. But we continue to do insane things. Uh, I think Einstein said that if you do the same thing and expect different results, that's the definition of insanity. And that's where we're at on federal land management right now. So the Trump administration started trying to put some common sense into these environmental laws so that you could actually protect species so that you can conserve nature. And I think those were working. But this administration uh, doesn't seem to care about what works or what's common sense. Just if the previous administration did it, they're going to uh, roll it back. So we did introduce uh, a suite of bills uh, dealing with endangered species legislation. And uh, a lot of this is to codify some of the stuff that was uh, done administratively during the Trump administration. The reality of that going anywhere in this Congress is, is slim to none, but I think it tells the American people what could happen uh, if common sense were to prevail. And we're going to keep pushing common sense bills based on science that actually do good things for uh, for the environment. And what my colleagues across the aisle seem to fail to realize is that in order to have a healthy environment, you actually need a strong economy. Some people think those two are mutually exclusive, but I say they go hand in hand. And rural America could be benefiting dramatically from an economic standpoint while making the world a better place to live 
while protecting species, while making forests healthier, while making more water available, while being able to produce uh, the food and the fiber that's needed to not only sustain this country, but to export it and uh, you know help people in other parts of the world live a better life. But the policy track that we're on is going just the opposite direction. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And when you talk to federal land managers at the ground level, you can hear the fear in their voice that the little bit of progress that's been made in the, few, in the last few years might be eroded. You know, they, they're the ones that actually have to implement this and they know how broken it is. They see the effects of that. And, and watching their hands get tied again in real time is, is something that uh, is just absolutely disheartening. But um, we, we can't tell you how much we appreciate the fact that you guys are continuing to illustrate where we need to be going, even if, as you said, uh, the prospects for that in this Congress are tough ones. And, you know, we've introduced legislation that... I think it's a win-win for forestry, for water, uh, and for rangeland. With the, it's part of the Trillion Trees Act. It's also part of the Resilient Federal Forest Act. But we're looking at something called biochar, and you know, you can you can make biochar from low-value, uh, small-diameter biomass that needs to be cleared out of the forest to make the forest more uh, fire-resilient. But the neat thing about biochar is you can put it on our rangelands or on our ag land, and it actually makes those soils more productive because it retains uh, more water and it makes water more available for plant uptake. So if we look at uh, drought conditions, you could actually make the forest more fire resilient, make farmland more productive and be a better manager of, of water. Those are the kinds of common sense solutions that we're proposing uh, that would be beneficial to rural America and be beneficial to, to all of America. And the, you know, kind of the, the icing on the cake for biochar is it's almost pure carbon and it'll hang around in the soil for hundreds or even thousands of years. We know that from uh, biochar that's been found in the Amazon that the Incas put there over a thousand years ago. So you could offer a uh, a good investment tool for maybe a large corporation that wants to invest in carbon sequestration, they could help purchase this biochar to put on ag field. You know, I think that's one of the, the most exciting things. You know, if there's anything exciting about this year, I think that's one of the most exciting things that, that we have, have seen develop this year is really the development of some of these really creative conservation measures and, and exploring new or perhaps not so new, right, conservation measures and tools and, and application of existing science. You know, you and I have had this conversation a number of times about farmers and ranchers being those original conservationists, right? Right. That, you know, we don't need to necessarily reinvent the wheel because there are so many conservation practices, especially in farming and ranching, that that they've worked for so long um, and they should be allowed to continue to work. You know, sometimes I feel like we're fighting this this conservation and climate battle or having this discussion on two fronts. One is the regulatory and legislative front, which, you know, we've talked a lot about this morning. But the other is sort of this larger ideological conception of, of what conservation actually is. You know, we at NCBA have been sending the message and, and our producers have sending or have been sending the message that as this administration talks about conservation through the America the Beautiful, through 30 by 30, um, as they're having this conversation, you know, our the work that our producers do should be should be front and center. 
How much of the, the 30 by 30 narrative or discussion are you having in, in your committee? And you know, are there ways that we can push that larger ideological discussion um, in, in a more aggressive or a faster way so that we can make, hopefully, make some better progress in this regulatory and legislative space? Caitlin, the 30 of a 30 discussion has, has calmed down some. Um, and you bring out a good point. What is conservation? Conservation is simply being a good steward. Uh, conservation is derived from the word conserve or conservative. And, you know, the definition of, of conservatism is that you believe you have uh, obligations, unchosen obligations to the past and to the future. So as a conservative, I believe that I have an obligation to be a good steward of the resources uh, so that future generations have access to those resources. That's simply what uh, conservation is. And you're spot on. Our farmers and ranchers and foresters are the leading conservationists uh, in, the, in the country. And it seems like policies are being stacked against them uh, where they should be uh, policies to actually help them do their job. Farming and ranching is a tough business to be in right now. I did an ag tour in my district um, a few weeks ago and the supply chain issues, uh, the labor shortages, uh, the increased cost of inputs, uh, you know, the inflation on the inputs is making it even more difficult to be in that business of producing the food and fiber that's needed to so everybody can live and it's also uh, making it harder for these uh, farmers and ranchers to be good stewards of the of the environment that they've got. So we're heading in the wrong direction with these uh, over regulatory policies, uh, policies that stifle innovation. And, you know, biochar is it is an old, old um, product, but through innovation, we can find new uses for it. Uh, and we're seeing that a lot with with forestry and with ag products. You know, we're seeing a, a renaissance in building with wood using mass timber. And that's because of innovation. If we will let the innovators uh, get back to work and quit stifling their progress, uh, we'll come up with creative ways to uh, make our environment healthier and safer and also to grow a stronger economy. But when we use the heavy hand of the federal government uh, to set unrealistic goals and then uh, put impediments in the way to achieving those goals, uh, nobody's going to win from that. Congressman, I know we uh, are incredibly grateful for your leadership on a range of these issues. I can't tell you how, uh, how much we enjoy working with you and your staff and the work you do on behalf of producers. If you've got one message for our producers around the country that are listening to this about what they can do to make sure we're having an impact on this conversation, what would it be? I feel kind of like the football coach here and we're, uh, we're in at halftime and we're, we're down by a few touchdowns. And I would tell them, you know, get your head up. Uh, the world can't survive without you. Um, you know, when you talk about the necessities of life, it's food, clothing, and shelter. And that comes from rural America. It comes from farmers and ranchers and foresters. Uh, so keep on keeping on, uh, because at the end of the day, without the things that you produce, uh, none of the rest of us can exist. It's a simple fact. So the demand for what you do is going to be there. It's uh, unfortunate that uh, policies are being put in place that are making it harder for you to produce. Uh, but I'd say just do what you always do, and that's get up and do it again every day and hope that there's going to be a better time down the road. 
Well, Congressman, thank you for taking some time out of what I know is going to be a busy week. Good luck. We'll be uh, we'll be rooting for you this week. Uh, we we hope things uh, move in a in a better direction. Thank you for everything you do, and and thanks to everybody out there for listening to Beltway Beef this week. We'll see you again next week with a with an all new episode. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, including SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. 